It's TechBiter Worldwide for the week of July 29th, 2007. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. And this week's Technology Corner may sound a bit different because I don't have to cozy up to a microphone. I'm using a headset-based microphone so I can move around pretty much as much as I want to. This didn't come as a big surprise to me or perhaps to anybody, but Seagate has announced that they plan to halt production of IDE hard drives by the end of this year. You may remember when IDE drives were the hottest storage on the market. Well, instead of IDE, Seagate will now manufacture serial ATA drives. S-A-T-A. SATA. Seagate has become the first major hard drive manufacturer to abandon IDE, but let's face it, IDE has been dying for years. SATA drives now account for nearly two-thirds of desktop disk sales and a little under half of notebook disk sales. The IDE interface is an antique, at least by computer standards. It's 21 years old, but it still accounts for more than a third of hard disk sales. If you're looking for performance, you're looking for SATA. You're not looking for SCSI. The small computer systems interface was a big deal when Apple started using it, but even Apple abandoned that interface, and IDE is gone, or going, so now the interface you're looking for is SATA. Motherboard manufacturers will probably continue to support IDE for at least the next couple of years, and as for the drives themselves... You can find a 400-gigabyte SATA drive at Newegg for about $100. Twenty years ago, that much storage space would have been a bargain at $25 million. And if you remember when one-gigabyte drives appeared in the marketplace, you're not that old. How about 10-megabyte drives? Yeah, I remember those. And now the major manufacturers are introducing one-terabyte drives. What's next? A petabyte? And if we get that, what will we store there? Well, I have a digital camera, and when I shoot in RAW mode, which I do frequently these days, each image consumes 6 to 12 megabytes of disk space. That depends on whether I use the compressed RAW format or not. If I don't compress the RAW format, each image is about 12 megabytes. If I do compress it, it's down around 6 to 7 megabytes for each and every image. So if I choose not to keep the raw format, the file I save could range from 3 megabytes to 30 megabytes, and at that, it doesn't take a lot of time to chew through disk space. Oh, and by the way, some news from Western Digital. The company is using what they call green power technology in its latest Caviar GP1 terabyte hard drives. The green power reduces power consumption from about 14 watts to 5 watts. And in using less power, the drives also create less heat. The 1 terabyte green models 
will be available later this year. I continue to let you know how I'm doing with Vista. And I wonder, if a tree fails to fall over in a forest when people are standing by, listening for the sound of a tree falling over, did the tree fall over? Okay, listen. I know the philosophical question, or perhaps it's a physics question, is this. If a tree falls over and nobody hears it, did it make a sound? The answer to that, I suppose, depends on whether you include the listener in the definition of sound. But, as usual, I digress. Vista differs from Windows XP, but so far I haven't encountered any insurmountable problems. And overall, I like the way Vista works. You've seen my previous posts on the subject. There's not a lot that has changed since the most recent one. The most significant problem I've encountered is the difficulty of modifying the start menu. Of course, those who are inclined to whine about anything that Microsoft makes will continue to whine. But overall, Vista is the Windows we have been waiting for. Security is better, although it is sometimes a bit intrusive. Vista looks better, although those panels falling over backwards did make me a little dizzy for the first few days. The transition from XP to Vista has been relatively painless, at least if we omit the self-inflicted wounds that I gave myself in the process. I've even come to like the Windows sidebar, which I thought I wouldn't. That's a transparent panel that you can anchor to either side of the screen, It holds what Microsoft calls desktop gadgets. I guess calling them widgets would have shown too clearly where the idea came from. Widgets or gadgets are small applications that have one specific task. For example, showing the time or the temperature or weather information, news headlines, sports scores and the like. Gadgets aren't limited to just the sidebar, though. They can be placed on other parts of the desktop, at least if you like a cluttered desktop. Being an old radio guy, I keep the time and temperature in the sidebar. After all, at the end of every record, you want to mention the time and the temperature. You wouldn't want somebody to tune out simply because you forgot to do that. I don't normally keep the CPU meter on the screen, But if you take a look at the website, the website is www.techfighter.com, you'll see that I'm showing a CPU meter this week right over Tangerine's right shoulder. Tangerine's a cat, by the way. I placed it there just to illustrate the ability to have free-range gadgets. When you start Vista for the first time, the Welcome Center appears, and it'll continue to show up every time until you turn it off. I don't use this very often. It's kind of like an instruction book. And even though I don't use it very often, I've allowed it to continue to show up every time Windows starts. The Welcome Center shows an overview of new features and provides immediate access to new user setup and security. It's part of the system and maintenance menu from the control panel. Some of the components can also connect you to Microsoft websites for additional information and to allow you to download additional files. And even though I don't use it very often, 
It's there just to remind me that it's a good idea to look at the instruction book every now and then. When I installed Vista, I wasn't really aware that not all of the Adobe CS3 applications are fully Vista compatible. They're not. And every few days, the Adobe updater tells me I need to install an 8.1 update for Acrobat. Sometimes there are other updates, too. The automated update feature for Acrobat failed several times, but the other components always succeeded. I tried Adobe's support site, found no information there about the problem, except that 8.1 is the update that is supposed to make Adobe Acrobat CS3 fully compatible with Vista. So I really wanted to get that installed. The process started, validated the installation, began copying the files, failed, and then began rolling back. It eventually reported to me, the installation process has encountered a problem. Well, thank you very much. I knew it had encountered a problem. Would you mind telling me what the problem is? It's been pretty annoying because this is the update that gives me support for the operating system I'm using. And the fact that it keeps trying to install, fails, and then rolls back is a waste of time. Well, it happened again this past Saturday morning. In fact, it happened as I was preparing TechBiter Worldwide for broadcast. So I set my report aside to see if I could find a solution. I ended up downloading the patch and running it manually. During the process, there were five errors, each of which was a problem writing to a file in the config.msi directory of drive C. I ended up selecting retry for each. The process succeeded, and Acrobat 8.1 is installed. But this seems a little too much like black magic for my taste. But it did work. So I wondered what caused the error and why it succeeded on retry. Well, this is a theory, a bit of guesswork, certainly nothing certain. Vista has a highly protective attitude when it comes to drive C. Not just C colon backslash Windows, but anything on drive C. So it may be that an attempt to write files on drive C triggered a security alert that failed to display properly. Vista usually displays a message that asks for permission to proceed when something is trying to write to drive C. Well, that dialog never appeared. Instead, what I saw was an Adobe dialog. As for why it succeeded on retry, well, it may be that this simply passed the appropriate information along to Vista and that that allowed the process to continue. Maybe. I don't know. The other question I have is why the automated process didn't fail the same way. It just failed with a nondescript and totally useless error message that didn't explain what had gone wrong. Without knowing what the problem is, it's difficult to devise a solution. But the good news is that Adobe Acrobat 8.1 is now installed, and that makes the Adobe PDF printer now work under Vista. So, overall... 
It wasn't a bad morning's work. Who's going to win this battle, Netflix or Blockbuster? Blockbuster looks like it's on the ropes as Netflix continues to gain ground. By the way, I should explain right now and right here that I was given a one-year gift subscription to Netflix by a friend. And although I'm enjoying it, and although the price has dropped, it's far from certain that I'll continue when the gift subscription expires. Meanwhile, Blockbuster, having watched Netflix take over a lot of its territory, is keeping a close eye on what's going on. This might be a really good time to rent videos. I got a message from Netflix this week. It said, Great news! We're lowering the price of your three DVDs out at a time plan to $16.99 a month, plus applicable taxes. By the way, $16.99 a month is $17. Netflix continued to tell me that I don't have to do a thing except pay less. It said that my membership will automatically move to a lower price and it will be reflected in my membership terms and details. The lower price takes effect with my statement this week and my gift subscription still applies. In fact, my $16.99 plan not only gives me three DVDs out at a time, but it also allows me to watch 17 hours of movies and TV episodes instantly on my PC every month for no additional charge. Well, I don't think I'm going to be watching 17 hours of movies and TV episodes on my PC, partially because my Wide Open West connection has been providing little more than modem speed, and even if I had the full 4,000 kilobytes per second that I'm paying for, I probably wouldn't be watching TV on the computer. When I'm sitting at the computer, I'm working. When I watch TV, I'm usually lying down. But I'm off track again. This was supposed to be about what Blockbuster is doing. Now, by way of background, Blockbuster reported $35 million in losses to the end of the second quarter and announced changes that will limit the number of in-store exchanges a customer can make before being charged an additional fee. In trying to fight Netflix, Blockbuster emphasized the ability to return movies to the store for immediate exchange instead of mailing them back and waiting. But now, Blockbuster says the limit is five in-store exchanges per month for its $18 per month plan. And of course, they price their plan at $17.99 too. But I'm going to call that $18. If you want unlimited in-store exchanges, what they call the Total Access Premium Plan, you're going to pay $25 a month. So, is this a price increase? Well, not if you listen to Blockbuster's CEO and its PR spinners. It's a limit on in-store exchanges. But customers will now be able to exchange their online rentals for discounted in-store game rentals, in addition to movies. Okay, well, not everybody who rents videos plays games. Previously, Total Access members had the option to get one free game rental per month. Probably most of the people who had that plan didn't use it. So this is an enhancement, according to Blockbuster, that few people are likely to use. 
The good news for Blockbuster and its shareholders is that the company's ad campaign has boosted enrollment by 600,000 subscribers during the quarter. They now have 3.6 million subscribers. During the same period, and for the first time, Netflix actually lost subscribers. Blockbuster has also been testing video on demand in Denver and Pittsburgh, but the company is not willing to talk about the results yet. So how does all this work? Well, changes in total access terms for Blockbuster include what they call unlimited rentals of two DVDs out at a time for $15. That makes my head hurt. If it's unlimited, why is there a limit? Blockbuster also has unlimited rentals of one DVD out at a time for $10, and my head continues to hurt. How can you have unlimited, limited plans? I guess my head is just going to have to continue to hurt. In place of nerdly news this week, some stupid stuff. For example, stupid roadblocks. Every now and then I hear from Chuck Adkins. He's blind, and I mention that because it's an important part of this story. He's also a radio engineer for the Central Ohio Radio Reading Service, which is a division of the Ohio Radio Reading Services. The Reading Service makes printed materials available to blind and low-vision people by having volunteer sighted readers speak the text of the publications. The last time Chuck tried to send me a message via the TechBiter website, he ran into my security measure. It's a security measure that requires a user type a visible number that's on the page. Well, being blind, he can't see the number, but he knows my email address. It's on the website, after all, so he sent a message there. He told me he didn't mind the roadblock, and he understands that TechBiter is a small site with limited resources although I know it would be helpful to provide a spoken version of the security number, I have relied on non-sighted listeners to use the email address that's on the website instead of using the form. But Chuck is annoyed by the same kind of roadblock when it's used by big organizations that have the money and the resources to do things the right way. In his own words, I got a call from a listener who asked me how to sign up for MySpace so I tried to sign up to help him. After filling out everything, I got a request to enter the text to verify my account. Well, of course, he couldn't read that, and the site didn't offer to speak it for him. When I went to the Contact Us link, I got six top questions and nothing else. No way to contact them directly. Well, actually, there is a contact page, but it's not particularly easy to find even if you're able to see everything on the page. Chuck puts it this way, The problems being blind are getting others to realize that I exist, and my needs are important, and I do matter. I feel denied access to so many sites, forcing me to pay for my sin of blindness. Well, I don't know what percentage of Americans happen to be blind or have limited vision, I suppose that websites that deal primarily with visual communication might feel that they have nothing to gain from providing access and nothing to lose by not providing the access. 
guidelines do exist for making websites accessible. And if you're responsible for a website, I encourage you to do what you can do to make the site available to everyone who wants to visit. As for TechBiter Worldwide, I haven't been able to make the site speak the security number, but I do have some ideas for some additional changes that will help. More stupid stuff. Stupid spam. If you're going to send a spam that promotes a medicine that has supposed medical capabilities designed to enhance some part of your anatomy, it might be a good idea to find somebody who has heard English spoken once or twice. Occasionally I dip down into the dreck of the slop bucket just to see what's there, and I usually spend some time wondering just what kind of person might actually be fooled into buying something that is advertised with this kind of message. Here's the message. Finally, the real thing? Question mark. With no more ramp! Exclamation point. Pep! And there was a URL there. Are piping hot at the time. Well, here comes the original thing, not a counterfeit. One of the very exceptionals, occasionally absolutely unique produce, is easily accessible all over the world. Notice just what people say about this stuff. And here they provide what they think are testimonials. Have you ever heard someone who speaks English natively say something like this? I love how quickly Pep had an effect, misspelled by the way, on my boyfriend. He cannot stop babbling about how excited he is with his new caliber, length, and libido. Next testimonial. At the beginning, I decided the free sample parcel I received was kind of a joke till I actually tried to take the Pep. I cannot describe, depict... How plume I am with the consequences from using the remedy after nine short weeks. I'll be requesting on a constant basis. And then they suggested that I check up on more testimonies on this marvelous, misspelled by the way, product right here and right now. And then they gave me another URL. Oy. And finally, some stupid Mozilla mistakes. You know, we like to think the folks at Mozilla are smarter and better and more resourceful than the corporate drones at Microsoft. That may not be the case, though. And let me tell you this. I have spoken to some people who work for Microsoft, and they are hardly corporate drones. They're excited about what they're doing. They're smart, as are the people at Mozilla. The latest security release for Firefox, which is 2.0.0.5, has no shortage of security problems. So if you think you're safe because you use Firefox, maybe you should rethink that. When there's a security problem, do you keep it secret or do you let people know about it? The Full Disclosure Mailing List is one of those organizations that feels that when it finds a problem, it should let people know about it. And I agree with that. The full disclosure mailing list says that Firefox 2.0.0.5 contains a password management flaw that allows websites to steal passwords. So if you have JavaScript enabled and you allow Firefox to remember your passwords, your passwords might already have been compromised. 
It was a similar problem last year. It was one that did not require JavaScript. If you think you're safe, there's a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website that will show you exactly what a rogue website could see. Heise Security, posters of the proof of concept for this, and Mozilla developers suggest that there is a debate among the developers about removing the password memory feature. Why? Because rogue pages can steal passwords from browsers whether the user has opted for password management by Firefox or not. And, by the way, Apple's Safari is vulnerable in exactly the same way. How do you fix the problem? A couple of possibilities. You can disable JavaScript, or you can avoid using password management. Thanks for listening. This has been TechBiter Worldwide for the week of July 29, 2007. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website www.techbiter.com. And you can send an email from there. Thanks. Have a good week. No, I take that back. Have a great week.